It's indeed a great blessing for us to be together this morning. We're grateful for all who are present. A good number of ours are traveling. I've put some in the newsletter. There are some others, obviously, I didn't know about. Uh, we pray that God is uh, blessing them in their travels and will bring them safely back to us. We're thankful for those who are online with us today as well. And uh, just what a blessing that God has called us to be together. We'll be focusing this morning on the purpose of our gathering on the first of the week, at least, on uh, among the other things that we do as we're worshiping God in song and remembering uh, Him in prayer, calling out to Him in prayer as we're studying His Word, we are most pointedly gathered at His table to remember the sacrifice of His Son and to proclaim His death until He comes. And we do this every week, and sometimes we almost do it out of habit. I pray that that's not the case with you, but I can certainly confess there have been times when it's just been the time to take the Lord's Supper. We've done this so many times that we just end up doing it. It is one of the things that some of the uh, churches who don't often take the Lord's Supper accuse us of. Well, it just becomes rote. It becomes something that's not that important if you do it all the time. It, it's much more meaningful to us because we only do it once a year. That's not a valid argument, but it is an argument that's made, and we ought not to fall victim to what they're accusing because it is a possibility. What I thought we would do today, and I hadn't planned on this when I when I put this lesson together. I didn't realize it was going to fit with our reading from the week before. We did just read through this text during our reading, those who are, who are working through the Bible in a year uh, with the congregation here. And so I hope this will be helpful as you reflect on your reading from this uh, week as you go into this next week as well. What I thought we would do, though, is compare these texts that we have that uh, talk about the Lord's Supper. We're looking at Matthew and Mark's accounts of the Lord's Supper there, uh, and we'll be looking at uh, Luke's as well. And we'll be looking somewhat about what John has to say about it. Last week when I spoke on the Lord's Supper, I mentioned that uh, all of the texts we have really reflect back to the night that Jesus himself did this. We have an incidental account in Acts chapter 20 of them doing it. I believe it, we see some uh, binding inferences there. But all of the instruction we have is given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And 1 Corinthians 11, which harkens back to this night that's mentioned in those gospel accounts. And so we're making a comparison of these texts to see what is it we can learn about the Lord's Supper itself as we, as we analyze these texts. You'll notice one thing right away. Matthew and Mark's accounts are almost word for word. They're very, very similar. There are some very slight differences. We won't really point out the differences. We're looking for the things that are the same. But you'll notice they're almost exact parallels. So what do we see as we look at these texts? We just read the one from Luke, so I'm not going to read through Mark and Matthew's accounts, because they, they recount the same thing. But we will be focusing in on some of the phrases in these. What do we learn about the Lord's Supper as we analyze all these texts together? Well, the first thing I want us to understand is that we see a symbolic meal. We are talking about a meal here. In fact, I've highlighted the word supper there, if it's showing up on your screen, I hope it is, uh, because that is what Paul calls this later. But we're talking about the time they were together for eating, for breaking bread, for uh, taking of the cup and drinking from it as well. And so as this event happened in the life of Jesus with his apostles, they were actually at the Passover meal. And this, this meal that Jesus established is in some ways related to the Passover. The account in Luke 22 makes it clear that it's related but distinct. He says there in, uh, in verse uh, 20, Likewise, in the same manner, that is, as the supper, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. 
And so this is done in a similar way. It's likewise, and yet it's a distinct act. I think it's important that we notice this. Some people seem to think that the Lord's Supper is really just a Passover. All we're doing is celebrating the Passover, and therefore some will only have it once a year. This is the Christian's version of the Passover, as the Jews had theirs. We have ours, and so we'll celebrate it once a year as they celebrate theirs once a year. Well, that parallel doesn't match up. In fact, we can see really clearly, Jesus is not saying, oh, let's do this Passover as well. There is something very important in the fact that he chose Passover as the setting, and we'll see that in a moment. But this is a distinct meal. After they finish the Passover supper, then he set aside these two elements and specifically referred to and talked about them. So we'll see what he does after the supper. The thing that was important about the Passover meal, a couple of things that were important about it. Obviously, it's a meal that uh, celebrates their liberation, the Israelite liberation from slavery and from bondage in Egypt. And so they were coming out to become God's people that he had called them to be. Uh, and so, obviously, with Jesus, we are considering our, our escaping the bondage of sin and being called to be the people that God wants us to be that unites both Jew and Gentile in this supper. The Gentiles would not normally have partaken of this Passover meal. They would have had to be converted and become as the Jews. Well, now, taking of the Lord's Supper, all have to be converted and become uh, as sons of Christ to, to partake of it. But Jesus used the symbols what he's going to use in this symbolic meal, things that he took from the Passover itself, which were unleavened bread. And I want to suggest to you the language indicates also unleavened or unfermented wine. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, as he first tells the Israelites before uh, they're leaving from, uh, from Egypt what they're about to go undergo, tells them in Exodus 12, verse 8, that they're going to eat the flesh of their sacrifice, that the, the sacrificial lamb, the paschal lamb, on the night of their leaving. They'll eat it roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And he gives them the process. They'll eat it as though they're preparing for a journey because they will. They'll be heading out very quickly once that final plague uh, comes to pass and Jesus and uh, God's uh, angel of death passes over the Israelites but goes through the midst of the Egyptians and takes the firstborn. And in Exodus chapter 13, uh, a little bit further along in verse 7, as he's explaining a little more, he tells them, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. The indication is that all of the leaven is to be taken out, all leavening agents, and I understand that to mean also from the wine. They're not to be drinking fermented wine, nor leavened bread on the Passover meal. So what Jesus would have used to institute this Lord's Supper it's unfermented wine, it's grape juice, it's the fruit of the vine in its purest sense, and unleavened bread. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, we're not going to necessarily read that text, but he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, there's these false doctrines and things they had been teaching. Leaven became a symbol for sin. And Jesus is offering this meal, and he is taking our place as the sinless sacrifice. It's a meal that together with him symbolizes the eating of his body and the partaking of his blood. And since he's the paschal lamb, then he is also without hypocrisy and without the leaven of sin. And we see that in a couple of places. John chapter 1 verse 29. Think about how strange it would be if you didn't have the Old Testament context. When John sees this man coming along and he calls him an animal out of the blue. Oh, look at that lamb over there. In Brazil, they will call someone a donkey or call someone a, a horse if they drive poorly in traffic. So 
like they're driving with hooves on the steering wheel, I guess, is the idea. So this idea of calling someone an animal, yeah, that's, that's pretty rough. There may be animals that we call people. I can't, none come to mind now. But how strange it would be just out of the blue for John to see this man come, oh, look, there's a lamb. But everyone understood what he was talking about. He said there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because of the sacrificial system and because of this Passover lamb, which is who Jesus really is going to be, Paul calls to mind in 1 Corinthians 5 that same concept when he's urging the Corinthians to discipline one who's openly practicing sin among them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I don't think he's specifically talking about the Lord's Supper there, but when you think about the Passover, it wasn't just the moment of the meal. There was actually a week where they went without eating leaven at all. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day, during the Passover feast, they get rid of anything in their house that may have had contact with leaven. Sometimes they'll sell their plates and things to their neighbors and then buy them back again after Passover week because they understand there's to be no leaven. The point Paul's making is, if our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed, and that's an an eternal sacrifice, then the rest of our lives ought to be lived without any leaven, without any leavening agent, without sin and hypocrisy. And that was his uh, teaching there in 1 Corinthians 5. But the point of all this is that Jesus clearly understood these symbols. And as he's giving them to his apostles, who also clearly understand them, he's saying, this is a sinless sacrifice I'm about to make. I want you to eat and drink of my body and blood. There's something else that's interesting about the Jewish context of all of this is that Jesus is an offering of peace as well. And in the peace offering specifically, the offerer was to partake of the meal. In the sin offering, no, you're offering for sin. That is tainted flesh. A part of that is going to be completely burnt on the altar as the offering. A portion of it will go to the offerer, the priest, the the facilitator, not the offerer. The offerer is given that as a sin offering. But on the peace offering specifically, it was required that the offerer should eat of the meal. Now Jesus' offering here, his sacrifice, is truly what brings our peace. You see that clearly taught in uh, both Ephesians and Colossians. We'll begin with the Colossians 1 uh, register. Colossians 1 verses 19 to 22. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, to bring peace to all things, to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. His blood and his body have brought peace. That's what Jesus is offering to these as they're partaking of this meal, his body and the bread and his blood and the wine. Also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And then as we've been looking in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus clearly is the fulfillment of the peace offering. He's the one who's brought us near to God. And so partaking of the altar, eating from that sacrifice, was an imperative part of the peace offering. It was something that God expected the offerer to eat because he was actually inviting the offerer to sit at his table 
and partake with him of his flesh that belonged to him. Now, it wasn't his flesh in the Old Testament, uh, but in John chapter 6, Jesus begins to present this idea of eating of his flesh to the ones who have come just to kind of partake in this meal he's been giving along with his teaching. And he says, the meal's deeper than you think. You need to eat of me and partake of me, of my teaching and not just the food I'm offering you while I'm teaching, the physical food, but you need the spiritual food. So it begins in John 6, verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. It is bread, it's food that keeps our bodies going. It gives us the energy to live. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. <laughs> what a blessing that Jesus is offering. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. They thought their fathers ate bread that came from heaven, and truly they did. The manna was given from God, but it was only a symbol of what was to come in the Christ. He is the peace offering. He is what's required to be eaten of to have fellowship in truth with God. So we see that language in Matthew 26 and in Matthew 14 as they're participating together with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses this language when he's speaking sort of universally of the partaking of, uh, of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting how he points out this idea that comes from the peace offering. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 18, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? We're not going to read the text in Leviticus 7, but it's what regulates the eating of the flesh of the peace offering. And it's to be done a certain way within a certain time. In fact, the pure peace offerings were to be eaten within three days. On the third day, it was considered rotten, and the person would have to redo the offering if he hadn't eaten it before the third day. Uh, there's an interesting connection there with Jesus himself having risen on the third day. He is the fulfillment of the peace offering. So you've got this symbolic meal. It's related to Passover, which was a meal. It takes place at the same table there. It's uh, very uh, significant that it's related also to the peace offering, which involved a specific meal. And it's described in terms of a meal. That's the way Jesus talks about it. Luke, in fact, calls it the breaking of bread, both in Acts 2.42 and in Acts 20, verse 7, when he speaks of this action. It's a phrase that describes a meal in the generic sense. And some, in fact, some have argued in Acts 20 and verse 7 that it's just a common meal. And I believe that that's an incorrect uh, understanding of that text. That is a specific meeting. They came together for that purpose. It was the Lord's Supper, I believe. Uh, in Acts 2.42, we have two types of breaking bread. We have the common breaking of bread, which they did from house to house. But the apostles were teaching them in their doctrine about the breaking of bread. You don't have to teach someone how to eat. We can all figure that out. The apostles were teaching them something that was doctrinal, something that was new. 
And it's this breaking of bread that Luke describes, which is the meal of this Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul, as I mentioned earlier, uses the term supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. Text we'll look at in a little more depth in a bit, but he's talking about them having this supper together, and that is, uh, it's the Lord's Supper, as he calls it, and that's what we've typically come to call it. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, he says. You're eating your own supper. It ought to be the Supper of the Lord. It is interesting to consider how often God is considered food as a blessing. Really, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, he tells Adam and Eve, I've given you every green herb, and to all the animals, I've given all the green herbs. In fact, part of the curse on the serpent was, they would crawl on his belly. They would no longer eat of the green herbs. He would eat of death. He would eat of dust. Uh, Psalm 23 and verse 5 and so many of the Psalms talk about this, these blessings of God, just giving them the food from heaven. In fact, the description of the Holy Land is a land flowing with food, milk, and honey. So often, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, those are the blessings that God had given to Israel. Food after food after food. Revelation chapter 2 what does God promise to give to those who are faithful? I love this. Revelation chapter 2, already twice in this chapter, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. We first heard of that in the garden, but is now in the midst of the paradise of God. The heavenly garden, if you will. And verse 17, also in Revelation 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone. But that hidden manna, Jesus said he's greater than the manna. Where is the manna hidden? Well, it's in the Ark of God. Where is the Ark of God? Well, it was physically destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, written before the book of Revelation. So how is it still there? It's in the presence of God, in the, very, in the true temple that they're going to be invited to, and they'll be at, at the Ark, which is God's throne. They'll be eating manna at God's feet is the point. It's a spiritual reference to food, though. And so food is a blessing of God in every uh, age of the Bible, before the law, during the law, and then in the age of Christ. So this meal has that sense of blessing to it as we partake together. It's not just a symbolic meal. Obviously, we're not eating to get full on the Lord's Supper. There's symbolism involved. But it's a memorial meal. That's what it symbolizes. is a memorial to someone. And Jesus talks about this being his body and being his blood, which is shed he says, I want to do this before I suffer, before I'm killed. Uh, my body's given in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. So he's giving his body and his blood, and yet at the time he's offering them this, he's still alive sitting there before them. It's a strange situation. But he's predicting his death. He's already told them about it several times. And it's a death he's going to suffer on their behalf. He told them that in verse 15. I'm telling you this before I suffer. Look at Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Again, he mentions something a little different here. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Took the cup, saying, This, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then, it's not in Luke, it's at the end of uh, uh, Matthew's account in verse 29. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's saying, I'm going to die. But then I'm going to partake of this with you again at some point. And so they're completely confused. He's going to die for them. The Apostle Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 11 that each man ought to discern the body and blood of Christ because if not, he's drinking judgment to himself. 
So let a man examine himself, he says. But the point of that examining of self is to see, am I partaking this while I'm discerning the body and blood of Christ? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Paul emphasizes this discernment of the body, of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. But Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. I, I love the emphasis on this. As he's giving them these instructions, he says, if you want to remember me, this is how you'll do it. He chose this meal as the specific way to remember him. He didn't say, get a Christmas tree. He didn't say, put a cross up in your yard. There's a lot of things that people do, and they say they're doing this in remembrance of Christ. I don't have a problem with people remembering the Christ, but I have a problem with people, God has a problem with it, not remembering the way he said to remember. This is the specific memorial that he left. And so many people reject this one in favor of memorials that they've come up with that really don't honor him because they're not what he's asked for. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we ought to be doing this in his memory. Again, as I pointed out, this is really strange. When he says, welcome to the Jesus Christ Memorial Meal. Well, usually when we say something like that, the person we're, we're remembering, they've already gone on. Jesus is saying, you're going to remember this ahead of time. Because I'm going to go, but I wanted to be here with you this time, to take of this meal with you. Memorials are for the dead, and yet Jesus, as he offers them this, is still alive. One thing that's amazing about that is this misunderstanding that comes uh, from some, that the bread, when you take it, actually turns into Christ's flesh. Well, there's no way the apostles understood that. His flesh he was still using. He gave them bread to symbolize his flesh. That the wine, in some way, actually turns into Christ's blood. That is not a biblical teaching. Christ was still using his blood at the time he offered this memorial meal. And he gave them the emblems that would symbolize later his blood and his body. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 as often as you drink, uh, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's a memorial. But it is interesting that it's a memorial that looks forward to the fact that he's not going to stay dead. You proclaim his death till he comes. We'll continue doing this knowing that he's not in the grave. He is coming to join us. Think about, just for a moment, the first time the apostles partook of this Lord's Supper, celebrating this after his ascension. They were very sorrowful when they're taking this, this meal with him because he keeps talking about dying. They don't know what to do with that. And so then they leave from this and go out to the, uh, to the garden and Jesus becomes sorrowful, saying that his soul was sorrowful unto death. Pray with me. But they're so sorrowful and so heavy from the hour that they fall asleep. But can you imagine after they have seen him alive again and he's given them these instructions and they come together on that first Sunday, Pentecost, when Christ then gives them of his spirit and they, they bring 3,000 believers in and on that first day of the week partake of this. With a memorial of someone who not only died, that's what a memorial is for, but has already come back to life and has said, I'm coming someday to bring you all home. I'll go to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to bring you all with me. How would that have affected their taking of this Lord's Supper? This has just been kind of a rote thing. What an amazing and powerful symbol that they had and that they were then teaching these saints as they taught them about the breaking of bread. Can you imagine that on the first Sunday at that Pentecost? 
what a joyous occasion this would have been. Think about John. I love this. In John chapter 13, we're not going to look at that verse 23, but it shows that John was leaning back on Jesus' breast as they were sitting at the table. They were reclining at table. They didn't sit kind of like we do in a circle around the table. They would lounge and they would lean up against the table and they were close enough that John was such a good friend with Jesus, he could lean up against him. They were just very close. And so John, writing much later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, writes this way. Think about how much a celebration of victory the Lord's Supper was for him when you think about these words. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have contemplated, he says, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I just love to hear John's excitement as he's remembering the Christ that we walked with. We, We walked with him for 40 days after his resurrection. We want you to know we are certain that it's Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he came back from the dead. And you can be certain and you can have the joy that we have. That's the celebration of the Lord's Supper as they're remembering what Jesus has done for them in this memorial meal. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us, really, that this meal now in practice, years later, as Paul is reminding the Corinthians what he already taught them, and they've fallen out of good practice, he reminds them that this meal is really a fellowship meal. Some some people call this communion. I think that's right. That is the word where we get this word fellowship. It's the Greek word that's the same as the sharing in the sufferings. In a sense, this meal reminds us we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, we're also sharing in the joy that his suffering brought. And we share in that with many. This fellowship meal, Jesus told them first that he wanted to partake of this meal with them. He had desired fervently in Luke to take this meal with them. He wanted to be together because this fellowship was with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, we already mentioned verse 18 where Paul talks about the peace sacrifice. But look what he had said before that. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Are we not in fellowship with his body and his blood as we do this? And his argument is, don't also do that and then go to the house of the idols. If you're in fellowship with Christ, you have no place in the house of the idols. He wouldn't have gone there. You're in fellowship with him. The whole context of John chapter 13, where I mentioned verse 23 says that John is leaned back on Jesus' chest. The whole context of that chapter is the togetherness. As Jesus is serving them and washing their feet, as he's teaching them about the love they need to have for one another and the service they need to provide for one another and for all those who will come because of their teaching, that's what John 13 is about. Jesus is together with them. It's when Judas decides, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. It's so sad, it's so emphasized that all the others are in this loving bond and that's when Judas leaves. (laughs) Satan has taken him out of this picture of fellowship and love. Jesus was literally with them because he had desired to be with them. And he's also promised to be with them again in the Father's kingdom. That's where he really is emphasizing this is going to take place. He'll partake of this with us. I don't believe he's saying 
someday eventually when we make it to heaven. The point is, he is with us as we partake today. On the first of the week, as we're partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we are in fellowship with him. That is exactly what Paul was telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He didn't say because one day you're going to go to heaven, don't go to the idols' tables. Because you are now in fellowship with Christ. Because you are now in communion with his body and blood. Don't go to the table of idols. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. It is something that is very current. We are in communion with him now as he's partaking in the Father's kingdom with us. What a blessing. What a beautiful blessing we have. So it's a fellowship meal with Jesus, but it's also a fellowship meal with one another. That 1 Corinthians text is amazing. Just in the text I've got on here, a few of these verses shows four times where it says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. There's actually five times in that text from, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The emphasis is on their being together with one another to eat. I want to suggest to you that I think this is something that we end up getting wrong. I think I'm guilty of this as well. Their error here was that they didn't honor the meal's fellowship. I believe in many ways they're getting right this thinking on Christ. Paul is reminding them of that as well. But the problem was, or why they got distracted from thinking about Christ as they should, is that they weren't doing this together anymore. Christ had intended this in John 13 and in Luke to be something that they're doing together and together with him. But their error is they did not honor the meal's fellowship, the communion locally. And so he says, when you've come together, what you're doing, that's not the Lord's Supper. He was bringing you together, and you're dividing yourselves. Some of you are eating all the food. Some of you are drinking all the wine. And there's others that come along later and have nothing. Do you despise the house of God that you would do such a thing, Paul says? They're considering only their own meal. It's not the Lord's Supper, he says. It's your own supper, in verse 21. You've come to fill your bellies. You're doing exactly what Jesus told those people in the multitude not to do. John chapter 6, you came because you wanted your belly full. I'm telling you, eat and drink of me. And so these people, it seems, had fallen into that same kind of error. They're coming on the first of the week because they have this fellowship meal, but they've left Christ out of it. It's not even his meal anymore. And it looks like they're leaving each other out. And so he has a solution for them. I want us to consider this just for a second. In eating, each one takes his own supper. 1 Corinthians 11.28, we're to examine ourselves as we take the supper. How often do you find yourself focused here? You're focused on Christ, I understand that. But you're focused right here. And we've got all these people that are distracting us from our focus. No. We're in fellowship with these people. We're in fellowship with this body as together we partake of the body and blood of Christ. And I want you to know, if you see me with my head up looking around, I'm not distracted. I'm doing that because I want to see you as we're in fellowship together. I'm trying to work on that because I don't want to be guilty of taking my own little Lord's Supper and not partaking with all of you. I believe that's something that Christ has called us together to. In fact, this idea here of wait for one another, which is Paul's solution. He says, therefore, when you come together, wait for one another. Don't be in a rush to go get your supper and eat it. Wait till everybody's there. You'll all partake of it together. That was his, that was Paul's Uh, 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 solution to the issue there. Just have everybody come together. They were at midnight in Acts chapter 20. It was at night. That's why Eutychus ended up falling asleep. It's because they were waiting for one another. They'd waited. Paul had waited. He was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem and he stayed seven days. 
in Troas. He waited, in a sense. And we wait when we set our meeting times because it's when it's convenient for the members here. This is a really strange meeting time for me. It's the first time I've ever come together with a group that meets this time in the afternoon. What a blessing, though, because we've considered what's best for all the members so that we can wait for one another. It's the way we wait for one another in our practical sense today. But the word literally means to receive and accept one another. And so often it's, no, I'm going to do my little Lord's Supper and you do yours over there and don't, don't get in my way, don't, don't interact, don't interfere. I don't think we should intentionally distract one another, but we ought to be aware that we're partaking together. Paul's prayer even in 1 Corinthians 10, he's not even necessarily speaking of all the ones in Corinth. In fact, he's writing from somewhere else and he says, yet as we partake of this, are we not partaking of the body of Christ? As we do this wherever we are, as we're doing this sort of in a universal sense, we're taking of the body and the blood of Christ, even though you're over in Corinth and I'm here in Ephesus or in Rome. Uh, he was Ephesus at the time. So the emphasis in all of this is in their coming together. We're not going to read John chapter 13, but I urge you to go back and look at that and how often the emphasis there is on they're serving one another. Jesus is serving them by washing their feet. And Peter says, no, you're not going to serve me. He says, well, then you don't have a part with me. Okay, then wash my whole body. <laughs> serve me all the way. That's the idea. So we're serving one another in this fellowship meal. And I wonder if we haven't taught away foot washing. You know, we, we want to teach so much that that really isn't part of the Lord's Supper. It was an incidental thing. I agree with that. But if we said that foot washing is so not important, so not a part of our culture, so not a part of what was being taught, that we've actually forgotten about any fellowship at all during the time we come together for the Lord's Supper? We ought not to do that. We are to be together in fellowship with one another and with Christ. The emphasis on Acts is, in Acts is on the local fellowship of the saints. Think about this. I just love this in Acts chapter 2. This is a text that I think gets glossed over sometimes. Look at what happens. Here's people, here's 3,000 people that have rejected Judaism because they've understood, wait a second, we had rejected the Christ, but he gave us a chance. Let's not do that again. Let's follow this Lord and find out what he wants us to do. So it starts in verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. That word common is the word communion there. They're in fellowship completely. Sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They're in fellowship in every sense. Certainly they're in fellowship locally in the partaking of the, the Lord's Supper as well, as mentioned there in verse 42, that breaking of bread there. In chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, we already mentioned, they had come together. Paul even waited a week. He's tra All these traveling companions with them, and they've come to Troas, so they can be there on the first of the week as the saints gathered to break bread. It's the reason they gathered. They could have eaten any day of the week. They gathered specifically for the Lord's Supper. That was a local fellowship that was so important to them. But what's great about the Lord's Supper, as we've already mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 10, that this is fellowship with all saints everywhere. All those who on the first of the week are gathered together to partake of the Lord's body and blood, to remember Him. We're in fellowship with them in practice. Um, I want to look at something that's com comparable to that. We've already looked at these texts in 1 Corinthians 10, but look at 1 Corinthians 16. 
Because he, he mentioned something very similar in a few of these other texts about this fellowship, about this communion. It's not that there's some headquarters somewhere that's sending us the directive and we need to do these things. There is the head. There's Christ. And he's left his instructions for us here. This is our headquarters, if you will. We, get, we follow these instructions. We are in fellowship with everyone else who is also following these instructions. If we're doing the same thing, it ought not to be a surprise when we come across saints in Kentucky or in uh, Missouri or other places that look really similar to us in the way they handle worship if they're just looking here for how to handle worship. We ought to be shocked when we go into these huge buildings and we see stuff that we don't recognize from the Bible and they call it worship. That should be shocking. It's because they're not doing what the head says. And we ask why. Well, that's what they told us from the headquarters, the synod up in, in New York or wherever it may be. That's not the way it works. But there is real fellowship if we're following Christ's teaching. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. There's a pattern that's out among all the saints. Not just in Corinth, but also the churches of Galatia, which encompasses a huge region. There were lots of congregations that were doing this the same way, because the same Lord had instructed the same apostle to teach them how to do that. In chapter 14, verse 33, almost incidentally, he says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then he tells some of the things that are doctrinally happening in all the churches of the saints. All Christians are in fellowship on these points. And in chapter 4, verse 17, remember there's so much division in Corinth, and he's reminding them that God has laid down the same instructions everywhere. How can they be divided in one city if all the saints in every place are united on these points? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17 I sent Timothy to you for this reason. He's my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. The doctrine is established. The doctrine's the same. The fellowship based on that doctrine is the same. And so God has called us to this fellowship with all saints everywhere and very specifically in the partaking of the Lord's Supper as he is our focus. And it's amazing then as we think about the simplicity of the elements used that the Lord's Supper is suited to being a memorial partaken of universally on the first day of the week. There is nowhere in the world that you can't come across the basic elements of unfermented bread. And almost everywhere in the world naturally occurring, you can find grape juice. There may be places you have to carry it in. But for most of the world, that's something that's just easy to come across. God didn't ask us to have filet mignon and some other things that are really hard to come by and would be expensive. Very basic things for life that represent in a very visible way his body and his blood without the, without the fermentation, without the sin, without the leaven, and that were readily available for him at the Passover and are readily available today for saints all around the world in partaking of this Lord's memorial symbolic fellowship meal. It's something for saints, though. This is a, a partaking done by those who are serving God, those who have already come to understand what his son did and what this sacrifice meant. Jesus didn't have that Passover meal with everybody in Jerusalem. He had it with the apostles. Those who he had selected and those who had selected him and who were serving him at the time and very soon would scatter out of fear for the things he was about to undergo. But he brought them back together. And through their word, according to his prayer, they brought many others in. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost and uncountable millions to today including ourselves, most of us. But there may be some of you who are not yet the called of God. 
who have not responded yet to the gospel, who are not yet ready to sit at the table with the Lord. Maybe you want to be, but he's the one who has to prepare you for that by taking away the leaven of sin from your life. If you're willing to come forward confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to repent of your sins and have those washed away in baptism today, we would love to help you do that. If you'd like to learn more about that, seek one of us out and study with us. We'd love to help you understand what all that means. We would love to have you among us in this fellowship meal as we have fellowship with Christ and with you. In just a moment, we're going to partake of this meal. It is a meal that is designed for Christians and their memorial of the one who died for them. May we remember Christ and may we partake together as we do so.